So we've been on this pre-Advent and starting next Sunday with the first Sunday of Advent, officially Advent journey through the first, beginning of the first chapter of Matthew, uh, which most people would look at and say, wow, that's super boring. Uh, it's the genealogy that leads up to Jesus. But as we've been learning, it is packed full of incredible stories, stories that help us understand exactly what Jesus came to do, why the incarnation uh, the Advent, the Christmas reality that we celebrate is so central to who we are as Christians. And so uh, we're going to pick back up in this Advent story, uh, this Advent genealogy of Jesus and, and read from the beginning so we can kind of refresh ourselves with some names and get to another story this morning. This is what Matthew writes. He says, now this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We talked about Abraham the first week we were together. And Abraham was the father of Isaac. We told Isaac's story. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. We told the story of Jacob as well. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Terah, whose mother was Tamar. You remember, we told the story of Judah and Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And last week, we told the story of Rahab. What an incredible story. And Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Today, we're going to look at the story of Boaz and Ruth, and another incredible story is going to give so much insight into who Jesus was and what He came to do. Now often is the case, whenever someone is referenced or, or a verse or a piece of a psalm or something like that in the New Testament, whenever someone quotes something like that, uh, they are almost always invoking the whole story, not just that particular thing. And so for us to really understand the inclusion of Boaz and Ruth into this genealogy, we need to tell the whole story. The problem is, it's four long chapters. And so how we're going to do that is, I'm just going to speak it narratively to you, and every so often some verses will come up to let you know that I'm not making this stuff up. Sound good? Is that fair? And you can go home later today, you can read it really quickly, and find out I, I was telling the truth, right? Uh, and that's kind of how we'll, get, we'll move through this together and, and see the beauty of it. Now the story... Uh, of Ruth, to understand it, we have to set the scene. And so the story of Ruth happens, according to the author, in the time of the judges. So the judges you may or, not be, may or may not be familiar with in terms of Old Testament thinking. Right? So Moses comes, he leads the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Joshua takes over as leader. He leads the people into the land. They have a somewhat successful conquest of the land. If you read the book of Joshua, they don't really do everything God asks them to do. And it kind of leads to chaos in the land. So the book that follows Joshua is the book called Judges. And there's this, if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know it's not filled with great stories, right? There's good leaders that God raises up, but overall the people aren't so swift, right? The people are living the wrong way, and it's these cycles of rebellion. And so uh, as we enter into the story of Ruth, which is going to be an incredibly redemptive story, we're, it's meant to stick out like a sore thumb, right? You've ever been in a place 
where everything looks like something and there's one person who looks radically different than everyone else. When we read this story, that's what it's supposed to look like to us with our Old Testament eyes on. This happened in the time of the judges. This never happens in the time of the judges. Boaz in particular, but Ruth as well, are meant to stick out to be exactly who God called His people to be, but no one else is living that way. Does that make sense? So, in the time of the judges, we start out the book of Ruth, there's a famine in the land. And there's a man, his name's Elimelech. He's married to a woman. Her name is Naomi. They have two sons, Malon and Killian. And they're struggling. They're struggling to, to find food. They're struggling to put food on the table. They're struggling to make ends meet. And so Elimelech uh, and Naomi make the decision to leave the land uh, of God's promise. Uh, strangely enough, they're living in a place called Bethlehem. And Bethlehem in Hebrew, you may or may not know this, Beit Lechem is how you say it in Hebrew. Beit means house. Lechem means bread, right? So Bethlehem is a house of bread. Problem is, there's no bread in the house of bread. And so Elimelech and Naomi are trying to figure out what to do, and they decide, we need to leave. And so they leave, and they go east, And inordinately, whenever you go east, especially in the Old Testament, you're often leaving the presence of God. Directionally, that's kind of how it goes. When Joshua and the people come into the land, they're moving west across the Jordan River. And now these people are moving east. The the idea is that they're leaving God's presence. We'll find a little bit later as we unveil in the stories that they've actually made a really bad decision. They've actually misunderstood the purpose of the famine and what they ought to have done was actually stayed. We'll get there uh, in just a minute. But they leave, and they go to a place called Moab. Now, this might not mean anything to you, but if you read through the story of the judges, you know that Moab is a bad place, right? It's like a super big-time rival and enemy of Israel. Uh, The king Eglon, if you remember that story, Uh, He's from Moab. This is a bad place. This is not a place you want to be. And that's exactly where they go. And they settle and they intermix with the culture there. And the story doesn't go very far. I think it's in verse 2 or verse 3 of chapter 1. Elimelech dies. right? And then shortly thereafter, uh, though taking wives from Moab, Orpah and Naomi, the two sons, Malon and Kilion, also die. And so early on in the story of Ruth, we're left with Naomi as a widow who all of her children have died, who she has two daughters-in-law who are Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And that sets the stage for the story that we want to tell. You know, one of the most pervasive words in the book of Ruth is the word kindness. It's a fascinating word. And I would suggest to you that if you're going to understand the book of Ruth, you have to understand this idea of kindness. And ultimately what it's pointing to is not the kindness we'll see from Ruth or the kindness we'll see from Boaz, but ultimately it's the kindness of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 that it's the kindness of God that leads his people to repentance. A kindness is a giving of yourself for the betterment of someone else. And so in this story we see first and foremost the kindness of Ruth. Maybe you're a little bit familiar with the story, or at least the big headlines of Ruth. And you know that Naomi says to her two daughter-in-laws, listen, 
thank you for wanting to stay with me, but I've got nothing to offer you. I have got no sons who can marry you. Uh, I, I don't have a husband to produce sons. Uh, I'm not, I don't have any money, any, any food. Um, you're tied to dead weight here. You should just go back to your father's household, go back to your gods, be with your people. Uh, and of course, the daughters both deny that, right? There's a, there's a sense in which they say, no, we won't do that. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with this, but in ancient Eastern cultures like the Hebrew and Semitic culture, there was an expectation of deference, right? And so at some level, these people are doing this, but at some level, they don't mean it. Does that make sense? They're kind of going through the motions of, no, we would never do that. And then Naomi insists they do that, and it kind of is a back and forth until they go. Well, as this process goes on, the first daughter-in-law, Orpah, says, okay, I've done my cultural necessities. Now I'm going to take her up on it, and I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back. She kisses her. Mother-in-law says they weep, and she goes back. But Ruth does something super odd. Let's just be honest. She says, listen, I'm not leaving. This is how the author records it in Ruth chapter 1. She says, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. You go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging. You ever had that experience when you're just pleading with someone to do something and you get the the chance they're not listening, so I'm going to not waste my breath anymore. Ruth is coming along for the journey. So we have to pause and ask ourselves, why? Right? This is the question we ask a lot when we're reading these stories. What on earth would lead Ruth to make this decision? Well, we get the sense at some level that she has actually embraced the God of Israel, right? And she says, may the Lord, Yahweh, she's saying, may the Lord deal with me ever so harshly if I don't do this. There's a transformation that's taken place there that's different from her uh, sister-in-law, Orpah. But even so, what Ruth is doing is extraordinarily out of the ordinary. I might even go so far as to say it's actually somewhat miraculous. That without God's intervention, a human being would not make a decision like this. When she says, when you, where you die, I will die, that's basically a summary of what Ruth is doing here. Ruth is basically saying, I give up the rest of my life to be with you. She's saying, listen, Naomi, I believe everything you've said, that you have nothing to offer me. I think you're telling the truth. And I'm going to come with you anyway, because what I'm going to do is attempt to serve you even though you have nothing to give me. That Ruth is laying down her life even though Naomi has nothing to to offer back. You're already seeing the gospel implications of this storyline. That we serve a God who because of Christmas would enter into our world to lay down His life even though we have nothing to offer Him. Ruth does something unimaginable. Her kindness is shown to Naomi because she stays with her to serve her. But it goes even further. They get back to Bethlehem 
and they say, now we've got to figure out how to eat. Like, we got back here, seems like the harvest is happening, but how are we going to eat? And Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to go into the fields and see what I can find. Now listen, in those days, the Jews lived by the Mosaic law, right? And those laws demanded that harvesters leave edges of their fields so that people like Ruth could collect them. But I remind you the context in which this story is told, right? It is not the kingdom of David or Josiah or any of these high moments. It is in the midst of the judges, right? And so just because a law is, quote, on the books does not mean that the people are following it, right? It's just like when the speed limit says 45 and you go whatever it is that you go, right? And so Ruth, when she's doing this, knows that culturally it's appropriate for her to do it, but she's entering into all kinds of danger. She's quite literally sticking her neck out. Friends, she's not even a man who's a foreigner who's doing this. She's a woman who would have had very little social protections. She says, now I'm going to go out into the field and I'm going to collect grain for you, Naomi. We see Ruth's kindness in literally sticking her neck out to provide for her mother-in-law. Ruth is, she's, like I say, she's a miraculous human being. My guess is that of her own accord, in the same way of our own intentions, though we might like to think we would do something like this, we probably would not. It takes a divine act of God. And Ruth, in many ways, is the means by which God is providing for Naomi. But the kindness doesn't end with Ruth. The kindness is seen even more so in Boaz. So Ruth goes out to begin harvesting uh, from land, and it just so happens that she finds herself in a field that belongs to a man named Boaz. And so let's pick up the story there in chapter 2. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. So he's now on the outskirts in the fields where they are. And he greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. You're already seeing something different, right? If you've ever read the book of Judges, people don't talk like this, right? Everyone's out for themselves. But Boaz is a different kind of guy. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseers replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Incredible. We see the kindness of Boaz in a number of ways. The first way we see the kindness of Boaz towards Ruth is that he sees her. It's so easy for us to overlook this. But here's Boaz in the midst of a pretty large operation that's happening. 
in which he is overseeing, and he notices Ruth's presence there. And when we say that he sees her or he notices her, it's not just that something out of the ordinary is happening. He sees her for who she is. He doesn't see her as a refugee or an immigrant or even an illegal immigrant, to use language we often use. But he sees her in her humanity. And he sees her as a person with needs and value. And all of that begins to give life to how he's going to treat her. I pause and say this, and and I've already said some things that maybe I've just poked you a little bit. And I don't mean to do that, because this is not a political sermon in any way, shape, or form. And you can have different perspectives on immigration and laws and following the laws and all of that, and I I get that. They're completely justified in many different ways. The point I want to make to you is how you see another human being will determine how you treat them. Does this make sense? And if you see them simply as part of something, you're not going to see them for their intrinsic value. If you see them just solely as different or other, then you're not going to see them for their intrinsic value. If Boaz doesn't see Ruth in a particular way, the rest of the story doesn't unfold as it unfolds. It's not unimportant or simple semantics that we can pass over. See, we're taught as Christians to understand that every single human being, no matter what their story is, where they come from, how their past has shaped them, is created in the image of God. That means that their origin and source, just like yours and mine, is God Himself. And that He was not off His game when He created them, nor was he off his game when he created you or me. And that having that image of God in us is not just about our origin, but about our inherent value and purpose in this world. That our very existence speaks to the existence of God. And every single human being should be treated with that kind of dignity. And Boaz does it. Now this shouldn't be surprising to us, Because everything God has told His people is to do exactly that. There are specific laws for how to treat foreigners or women or widows or anyone in this situation. The problem is, as we well know, laws aren't good enough to transform our hearts, are they? But Boaz is living the kind of human life that God desires for His people. He sees her. And it unfolds into an incredible story. First thing we see is that Boaz's kindness towards Ruth and ultimately towards Naomi is that he protects Ruth and Naomi. He says, listen, I've told all my men not to lay a hand on you. Why? Because it's the time of the judges, right? And because men, uh, who, men in general can be difficult people, right? and can, especially in cultures like that, desire to take advantage of a vulnerable woman. And Boaz says, not under my watch. You're safe here. In fact, he goes even further. and says, listen, here's the deal. Don't glean anywhere else. Now, in that are two important things to think about. The first is, you stay here because it's safe here. It's probably not safe anywhere else. But also what he's saying is, that means she's going to keep 
feeding off of his dime. Does that make sense? Like it'd be nice, okay, you can be here for today, but then go over to my neighbor's field for tomorrow, and then someone else would spread this around. And Boaz says, "Uh uh-uh. Your protection is of such importance to me that I'm going to pay the cost to make sure it happens. This is gospel hospitality, friends. This is what it means to welcome and love a stranger. Not simply to exchange pleasantries and smile and be nice, but to welcome in even at a cost to ourselves. That their protection is of such importance to us. But more than that, we see the kindness of Boaz in his provision for Naomi and for Ruth. Listen, he says, you take whatever you want. And before you even keep harvesting, he says, listen, sit down and eat. Right? And he feeds her this, what, what the narrative kind of unfolds, this incredible meal. It says that she eats as much as she can and there's still left over. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for her? We don't understand <laughs> what it would have been like to be Naomi and Ruth in a storyline like this. We don't understand what it would have been to not know where our next meal is coming from. Like, can you imagine stumbling into a field and being given such a splendid meal that you can't even consume all of it? And he says, listen, also, whenever you need a drink, drink from my water here. What's he saying? Don't go all the way back into town to have to get your water. Protection, provision, incredible. And then he says, oh, by the way, I've instructed my men to be extra careless with the harvest, right? Because the rules were in the Jewish day that whatever, as the men were harvesting through, whatever fell to the ground, they weren't supposed to pick up. They were supposed to leave it for people who were uh, less fortunate than them or impoverished. And Boaz is basically saying, I'm telling my men to drop a lot so you can pick up as much as you need. So much so that when she leaves one day of work, she leaves with an effa, right? What is that's like, who cares, right? But that's a 30 pound bag of grain. Imagine this. Imagine when she comes back and Naomi sees this. But she doesn't just come back with a 30 pound bag of grain, she also brings back the leftovers from the meal that she couldn't finish. And Naomi receives her back, and they're both overwhelmed by this. And Naomi's like, hey, go back there tomorrow. And Ruth's like, yeah, duh, right? (laughs) We've already figured that stuff out. This incredible kindness. We'll get here in a second, but church, let me just pause and say, how Boaz is living is how God calls his people to live. This is not a moment in a sermon where I say, so be like Boaz. That's a moralistic sermon. That's not the point but a fully transformed heart by the Gospel will be noticed and seen by a life like this. Does it make sense? Full-on sacrifice for others who have nothing to give back to you. But they are important simply because they're image bearers of God. But the story doesn't end there. As Naomi's thinking about this, she's like, wait, we've got an opportunity here. And Naomi says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I I want you to, in essence, um, propose marriage to Boaz. Now, I say it like that because there's lots of interesting ways that Naomi tells her to do, and I'll explain them here in a second. 
And if you really want to dig into Old Testament backgrounds, there's actually some euphemisms here that are a little risque. I'll let you decide if you want to go there or not. My guess is there's probably some truth to that. And Naomi says, here's what I want you to do. At the big moment of harvest, right, uh, this is big time of celebration. We know that. We remember that from the story of Judah. That's when he gets himself into trouble, right, because lots is going on. People are happy. They're drinking. Um, And so the idea is, you know, Boaz is going to have this great time. He's going to eat a big meal. He's going to be full. He's going to be happy. All this harvest has happened. He's going to sleep outside. So they would do this to protect the harvest that was there. And she says to Ruth, what I want you to do, go to him in the night after he's asleep and basically crawl under the covers with him. Right? Now, this is a crazy thing to do. Ruth's like, okay, I'll do it. So let's pick up the story there. Ruth chapter 3. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Right there, this is an interesting statement. It doesn't make sense to any of us. There's some euphemism there about exactly what's going on. Uh, What she's doing is basically very suggestive about her intentions and what she wants. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet, right? This is <laughs> craziness. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. What an interesting way to propose marriage. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. <laughs> this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you everything you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Incredible. The final moment of kindness that we see in Boaz is his full embrace of Ruth. When he welcomes her in to his very family. How incredible. You know what's telling to me in this whole story? Boaz never takes advantage of Ruth, does he? He has every opportunity throughout the story to force himself on her. And never more than this moment, when she basically puts herself in the most vulnerable position, even still he says, yeah, I'm going to do this for you, but not just yet. How fascinating, how gracious, how kind. And then, the very thing that she asks him to do, he does. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? She says, listen, uh, put, the, put your cover over me. What does this mean? The word cover, actually probably better translated, maybe some of your translations have this, is corner, put the corner of your garment over me. It's the Hebrew word kanaf. If you've heard me talk about this before, it has all kinds of different meanings. It means corner. Uh, it also means wings, right? So we sang that song earlier, praise to the Lord, and his wings enfold us. This is the idea of what's actually happening here, though it was symbolized by a corner of a garment going over someone. The, the bigger picture is actually someone being brought into the nest. Do you see it? Being welcomed into the flock. Boaz is spreading his wings around her in ultimate protection. It's so beautiful. So incredible. 
But she says, listen, I need you to be my guardian redeemer. A more literal translation maybe in your, in your Bible is a kinsman redeemer. And this comes from some of the Old Testament law. What she's basically saying here, if I can super summarize it, is, hey, it's not just me who needs your help, it's Naomi. In other words, yeah, I'll be your wife, but she's going to be your mother-in-law. <laughs> like, it's a two-for-one deal, right? And oh, by the way, we've got nothing. In fact, you're going to have to pay off our debt to have us here. A kinsman redeemer means exactly that. And so the closest relative was expected to pay off the debt to liberate a relative who was impoverished or in slavery. See this? So Boaz is like, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to do that. How incredible that his embrace is not just for a beautiful wife, but for the full opportunity to redeem this whole family unit. Incredible. Do you know what? The story ends in chapter 4 with Ruth and Boaz having a baby, having a son. His name's Obed. And this woman, Ruth, who had given up her whole life, now has a lineage and a legacy that she never could have expected. All because of the kindness of this man. But I told you all along, the hero of the story is not Ruth. It's also not Boaz. The hero of the story is actually God. It's the kindness of God that is on full display in this story. We see it because God acts through what we call theologically providence. That God uh, is in the business of what we might call um, coincidences that actually aren't coincidences. He's intending them to happen. It is no coincidence that Ruth clings to Naomi. That's God. In the same way, it's no coincidence that Ruth stumbles into the field of Boaz. That's God. Listen to even how the narrator writes that particular storyline. So she went out, entered a field, began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, right? That's a providential phrase, right? She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, her father-in-law. God knew what he was doing. She hadn't put the pieces together. She had no idea what was going on. But God was working behind the scenes to provide her full redemption. Some of you are in the throes of it right now. You may not be looking for food to put on the table, but you're looking for what your next step is. Life is chaos. Can I assure you that the God of the universe who created you and loves you is working hard behind the scenes in ways that you do not yet know in order to protect and provide for you and see your ultimate redemption and restoration. We don't write stories like Ruth until they're over. Because when we see it fully, we can write it best. What's more, we see the kindness of God directly to Ruth and Naomi by His full-on embrace of them. Look at this with me for just a second. When, when God is, is pursuing Ruth, think about Ruth for just a minute. She's a Moabitess. She's a woman. Uh, she's a widow. Uh, she's given up her life to serve Naomi. She's a foreigner, right? She's not part of God's family. 
And yet, she's coming to his people to seek refuge. In fact, Boaz summarizes it for Ruth in this way in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. He says, listen, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The whole idea is Ruth is throwing herself at the mercy of God. She's looking for refuge in Him, and she finds it. Because those who are truly looking for refuge, not just externally, not just by going through religious motions, but honest to goodness looking for refuge in God, always find it. You see the language there in chapter 2, verse 12? For refuge where? In the kanaf of God, the wings. It's not lost on me, nor should it be lost on you. That the very way that Ruth finds provision from Boaz is the same way she's looking for provision from God. Let me put it to you this way. That often, if not always, the means by which God fulfills His promises to us and or protects and provides for us is through His people. How is Ruth going to be brought into the wings of God? By being brought into the wings of Boaz. Do you see it? This is why it matters how we live, church. This is why it matters that we live God's way in this world. It's how He intends to redeem the whole world. How are people going to find the warm embrace of God? By discovering your warm embrace. How are people going to meet the true love of God? By seeing your love for them. How are people going to understand and comprehend things like grace and mercy and forgiveness? By your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Imperfect though they may be, this is our function in this world. How does Ruth find refuge in the wings of God? By climbing under the covers of Boaz on a threshing floor. I'm not telling you you ought to make bold and risky moves like that. But every once in a while, maybe make a bold and risky move in ways that God is calling you. And you will find him utterly faithful. But friends, though this book is called Ruth, it's actually not about Ruth. Do you know who the main character of Ruth is? Though she gets not a lot of mention except in the beginning and the end. The main character of Ruth is Naomi. The whole book of Ruth is about Naomi. It's about God's pursuit of Naomi through supernatural means. We meet Naomi at the beginning, and we told the story. She leaves the house of bread for Moab. I suggested to you at the beginning, this was a poor choice. Here's how we know. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God had spoken to his people through the preaching of Moses. And he said, listen, if there is ever famine in the land, there's only one reason for it. It's because you have rebelled against me and you need to repent. But Elimelech and Naomi, rather than processing their experience through the need to repent and believe, instead continue to try to live on their own and pursue livelihood for themselves. They avoid repentance and they keep living their own way. And as they go off into Moab, Naomi has a hard story. Let's not mince words. She loses her husband. She loses her sons. This is challenging. 
But we do not find in Naomi a sense of remembering a need for repentance. Instead, we find in Naomi someone who is consistently casting blame on other people. Specifically, God. Now, how common is this of the human experience? We make our bed, therefore we lie in it, and it's all God's fault. Have you lived that story? Because I do, nearly every single day. And here we find it in Naomi. Listen to the story, how it goes in chapter 1. She says as she's coming back to Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara means bitter, right? Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. It's His fault. He did this to me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now some might see in that the beginnings of repentance. That may be so. I don't think so. I think she's got a negative and a wrong view of God. And the whole book of Ruth is to correct that view of God. But God's not actually against her. He's actually quite for her. The whole book will unfold to show it. Naomi is someone who is ultimately fully consumed with herself. So much so that even when she tells her daughter-in-laws not to come with her, we have to begin to believe at some level she's really thinking about herself, not just about them. That their presence is going to be a constant reminder of the absence of her sons. That their presence is going to mean two more mouths to feed, both of whom are foreigners. How will she be received back in the land? Because this is the storyline of Naomi in the opening chapter of Ruth. But the minute she sets her sights back on the land of promise, I mean the second she sets her eyes on returning to the family of God, God's pursuit of her is heavy. We see it in how Ruth works in affection towards her. That's a God thing, not a Ruth thing. We see it then in how Boaz receives her. A God thing, not a Boaz thing. And how Boaz is a kinsman redeemer for her clan. A God thing, not a Boaz thing. And then as the story ends, it is really strange if you read it with your eyes wide open. Because the story ends all the author seems to want to talk about is that Naomi has a son. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, it's Ruth's son. But there's not a lot of talk about that. It's all about Naomi having a son. Why? Because her lineage is now fully redeemed in a sense. She's provided for in a way God, uh, she could have not expected, that God does miraculously. And it's written this way because the whole story for the reader is meant to be about the transformation of Naomi. Why? Because that's who we are. We'll get there in just a second. Listen to how the story ends. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And oh, by the way, he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. Here's this woman who ran off in rebellion, who lived in bitterness, who blamed everyone else, who was consumed with herself. And the minute she turns her eyes back towards God, He's there to receive her in the most profound way. And she becomes the lineage of the greatest king of the people of God. 
this is how our God works. He's not out to make your life miserable. He's out to redeem you, to restore you, to welcome you back. And why does this story happen and show up in the lineage of Jesus? Obviously because he comes from this line. But it's included in this way because Matthew wants us to know, ultimately, this is how God is going to redeem everyone who would turn back and come to him. And he's going to do it through a far better Boaz. In the same way that Boaz stuck out like a righteous yet sore thumb in the midst of a corrupt time of the judges, in the same way that he followed the laws of God and was a righteous man, so too Jesus enters into the mess and the depravity and the brokenness of our world and lives in utter righteousness. The Gospels tell us He is without sin, though tempted in the most profound ways. Righteous. And yet, He lays down His life for foreigners and runaways like us. In fact, Jesus will often refer to Himself, get this, as a bridegroom. What a weird analogy to use. He's the groom. Why? Because we're the bride. Jesus is not here just to give magic poofs of provision when you need it, even though we tend to pray like that, don't we? What He's offering for us is the corner of His garment. The wings of God to wrap around us. To welcome us fully into His people. And He accomplishes it by laying His life down. Paul, in reflecting upon this truth of Jesus and thinking about marriage, writes this to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Husbands, love your wives. And here's what I mean. Just as Christ loved the church, right? Jesus and the church is the bride. And He gave Himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word. And to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. How beautiful. My Bible is not a picture Bible. My guess is when Ruth shows up in the fields of Boaz, she's not fully adorned in the best of clothing. She hasn't put on her makeup. She doesn't have great jewelry. She's probably not wearing any kind of perfume. But my guess is, after this marriage ceremony, Ruth looks like a whole different woman in the family of Boaz. See what Jesus is offering you, church? We come to him broken, helpless, covered in scars, in desperate need of healing. And he presents us as radiant and without wrinkles by including us in himself. This morning, as you hear the story of Ruth, and as you look forward to the celebration of the arrival of Jesus to Bethlehem, we pause and we ask ourselves who are we in this story? 
Perhaps you are Ruth. And I don't mean that in the best of a sense because none of us are Ruth when it comes down to it. But perhaps you're Ruth in the sense that you're new to this whole church thing. You're new to this whole gospel thing, Jesus thing. I mean, we've heard bits and pieces about it before, but God's kind of far distant to you. You've not been in a relationship with him ever before. And I want you to know that the arrival of Jesus means that God has come close to you. You don't got to go find him. And he stands ready to welcome you in, no matter what your past is, no matter what gods you've served before, no matter what storylines you bring to this new narrative. If you ask him, he'll spread the corner of his garment over you. Well, my guess is more of us are a little bit like Naomi. Maybe in big ways we've rebelled against God. Or maybe in continuous small ways we continue to rebel against God. We look to be the rulers and the lords of our own lives. We're more prone to go to Moab than to depend on God. And when we look at the struggles of our life, we're more prone to look externally to find blame than inside of us to see our own brokenness. But the minute you turn your gaze towards God. The second that you remember who God is, you will find Him not crossing His finger at you, not demanding penance of you, but standing ready wholeheartedly to welcome you back. If you've been running from God in big or small ways, the moral of this story is stop and turn back. And oh, by the way, God has been working providentially for days and weeks and months and years and lifetimes so that you can see him for who he really is, not some strange characterization we have made of him in our own minds because of the circumstances of our lives. But there's one thing you've got to know, whether you're Ruth or Naomi. That though God offers this, He does not force Himself on us. Instead, He stands ready to provide this full redemption. But you, like Ruth, have to offer yourself to Him. Or you, like Naomi, have to repent and turn and walk back to Him. That's what the Bible calls faith. Faith is the means by which we access the grace and the mercy of God. How incredible that we serve a God who is not just great and mighty and powerful, but who in His essence is kind. Who meets our needs and protects us and spreads His wings around us. Would you pray with me?